0: to Head of the Class, a podcast produced by Our Schools USA. We are Christina Gagne, the former school board member, and Christy
1: Hurst, a former teacher and current public school parent.
0: Many of our podcasts explore what is actively happening on the ground in the unfortunate political environment that has been created within our public schools across the United States. Last week, the New York Times published
1: a really interesting article, um, Who Runs the Best U.S. Schools? it may be the Defense Department. Author Sarah Mervash, in a report from Fort Moore in Georgia, which is home to five schools, takes an in-depth look at how these schools perform. And there are some interesting results that we thought we should reflect on for this podcast.
0: Before we take a deeper dive, a few facts to highlight. First, because these schools are run by the Defense Department, there is no local school board or charter network. So there is not local control as we may conceive of it in public schools across the United States today. Second, these schools tend to perform higher than the national average. Department of Defense schools outscored every jurisdiction in math and reading last year and actually avoided widespread pandemic losses that we saw in other schools, both public and private, across the country. Third, for Black and Latino students when looking at reading scores, specifically their reading scores outpace national averages for white students, which is normally not the case in our public and charter schools across the nation. And finally, these results are not just one-offs. Since 2013, the Department of Defense's lowest-performing students, in comparison with the bottom 25th percentile elsewhere, have improved in fourth-grade math and eighth-grade reading, which are generally testing benchmarks. So we
1: start with these facts to highlight the DOD school's performance, but I think we have to ask, how do they, how, how did they get there? I think for those of us who want to improve performance in our public schools, we want to figure out how to replicate the successes that we see in the space.
0: The author of this New York Times piece suggests that these Department of Defense schools are, and to quote the article directly, insulated from many of the problems plaguing American education. She advances that these schools are, one, well-funded, two, socioeconomically and racially integrated, and three, they have a centralized structure. They're not subject to elections, politics, individual personalities in the local context driving the bus on local education policies and programs.
1: Let's start with the size of the system for reference. 150 schools across the United States and internationally uh, make up this school system. The author uses Fort Moore as the focus point of the article. This schools on this base serve about 1,900 students, and there are four elementary schools and one middle school. So for all appearances, the facilities look very much like your average public school. In reviewing this piece and doing some research, we decided to divide this into two sections. So first, the differences before students even enter these classrooms. And second, what happens when they are in the classroom?
0: So looking at the external factors, the families who attend these schools have three key things, which study after study, each of these factors can increase student performance in school. These families all have access to housing, they all have access to health care, and they have a steady income. At least one parent has a job. This author speaks to several experts,
1: and one aptly points out that the fact that these students have a typical middle-class life Uh, basic everyday things. So they point that out that that's, you know, something that is clearly playing a role in this, it looks like. But there are still some challenges. About one-third of the students qualify for free or reduced lunch. So let's turn to internal factors outside of the students and look at how these schools are operated. So number one, teachers are well paid. Two, the DOD spends about $25,000 per student, which is, not far from the highest spending states that are not necessarily seeing these same results. Um, teachers stay around. So with this increase of teacher shortages, you know we're seeing teachers are leaving, turnover is really high. But in the DOD schools, their teachers have an average of 10 to 15 years of experience.
0: And a quick aside, um, and I really encourage uh, you to read this article and we will share a link alongside the podcast, but there's a very striking picture in the article of this abundance of school supplies that are actually provided by the school. And, you know, if you're familiar with your own child's classroom, your own public schools, and even in private schools, a lot of the supplies that are provided are either provided directly from the teacher. The teacher, you know, takes out their own checkbook and purchases supplies, Parents are chipping in and purchasing supplies. There's platforms that teachers and parents leverage, like Donor Choose. PTAs and PTOs are oftentimes raising money for supplies. So, it was striking to me that this abundance of crayons and markers and scissors and all these things that, you know, really we do need more of in our public schools for students to engage in quality public education and arts and crafts and all the things that you need supplies for. The Department of Defense is providing an ample enough budget for teachers that they're not having to engage in taking it out of pocket. And let's turn to both an external and internal factor. So sort of aside from some of the things we've already discussed, that the socioeconomic and racial integration inside and outside of these schools. So these schools are on an army base. um, And so, you know, everyone is living in the same space. They are working in the same space and they are far more integrated than you would see likely in your average community. But another quick note, though, is that these military schools, because the military itself, Uh, was actually desegregated by President Truman before public schools were mandated to do it by the Supreme Court. And so this clearly relates to the desegregation of the military forces themselves, but this does have a deep history and mean that these schools, you know, operating by the Department of Defense have been desegregated much longer. Yeah,
1: another thing that is different is that even in different housing between officers and junior soldiers, they live on the same base. They attend the same schools. They participate in the same activities. So their community is really integrated.
0: Well, you also see some absence of the stratification um, that you see between communities and within communities in our local public schools.
1: Yeah, and we can't ignore that public schools in middle class or wealthier communities, they, they tend to have more parental involvement, more financial support, like the PTA will fundraise more money. I know I... I where I student taught their PTA, the first fundraiser out of the gate, fundraised like $100,000 in donations, where then, you know, flash forward a year later, the school I worked at, they couldn't even get that in a whole year, not even close. That would have been astronomical amount for them. So you can really see some of that. There's huge differences across different schools and neighborhoods. Um, They also, you know, and all that's outside of public taxpayer dollars.
0: Yeah. And I think that's an important point that we really can't overlook because even if you are in a school district, so there are across the country school districts that, you know, are unified and they put together multiple communities or they are in communities that have disparities depending on where you live in the community. You're just not seeing it, you know, on these bases. You're just not. It's not the same sort of representation. And so you don't have those factors that, you know, one high school has, the brand shiny new facilities and has all you know the new uniforms and a new pool and all, all these things that you know really help the students and the staff thrive in that environment and then you know you go a couple miles down the road and that school does not have the same experience. They don't have the same supplies. They don't have the same facilities. Like you're just not seeing that in these Department of Defense schools. And again, no one is pretending these conditions are perfect. I mean, this is sort of just a think about it podcast conversation. You know, racism clearly persists in the U.S. military and can persist, you know, in the school system. Uh, But the students have access to resources in a way That isn't driven by that. Again, everyone on the base has access to the same schools, the same teachers, the same facilities, the same activities. And so you are just sort of setting a different baseline, uh, you know, by being present, you know, within these schools and by being on an army base. Um, But I also think that, you know, this hierarchy piece needs to be explored. I mean, clearly the military is built in a Mm -hmm. hierarchical structure. I mean, that's clearly (laughs) how it operates, operated for years, not just in the U.S., but in other countries. But there has been this movement in education, particularly public education, to decentralize. And, you know, we were hearing this, you know, years ago, we heard this and we're hearing this more currently, you know, even candidates running for president or running for governor in different states wanted to span the the Federal Department of Education or even the State Department of Education, depending on the state the conversation is happening. Um, So the decentralization movement, you know, is not new. But what makes these Department of Defense schools largely avoid, uh, you know, these kind of external education politics of the day is the fact the military is itself a hierarchical structure. So people are entering into the structure, understanding what it is. They are trained in this hierarchical structure, um, this command structure, you know, whether it's. You're actually a member of the military, a military family around on the base. I mean, you're just aware of that structure and sort of aware of what comes with it. And mm-hmm. so decisions come from the top and there's not the same opportunity to, in my mind, you know, take the ship off its course, uh, which can and does happen in local school districts all the time. So, for example, you know, you might have one school board that has a certain, you know, take on an issue. Uh, Or how the school district should run, or what curriculum should be in it, or whether certain programs should be adopted or not adopted. And two years later, new members join that board, and you know the ship that was going one way in education starts to veer another. Mm -hmm. Say two years later, you know more members of the board that have different opinions join about the way the school district should go, or public education, or even just the programs offered in the schools. And so you really don't have that steady ship sometimes in public education, which arguably I think. Uh, in some districts, works better when you do have people that, you know, are there making sure that, you know, regardless of the politics of the day, that things are moving forward and that the students are sort of insulated and, and, and getting that quality public education. So, you know, you don't see that in the military for for clear reasons. And it seems as though, and again, this is one of those like think about it podcasts. Um, you know, it seems like that really may be working to the benefit in a lot of respects to both the students, you know, and the staff in these public schools.
1: Yeah. And I, I wonder too, about that hierarchy piece. And, you know, when you're in the military, there is a certain respect for authority. And when you're told what to do, you people sort of follow through. I wonder what role that plays too, because that's definitely a part of that subculture, you know, or, or they're flat out, you know, that's their culture. Um, uh, Next, here's a point in the article that could be subject to some controversy. And it's the implementation of common core is discussed in the article. And the author makes the point that it was rolled out with quote military precision, but they rolled it out over time and in waves of implementation. So they really they took time to roll out the curriculum. They took time and then rolled out teacher training and then global coordination and there is standardization across all of the schools. And as a teacher, like I would really be interested in seeing, you know, what this looked like in practice and, you know, what their teacher trainings looked like. And if there must be something to the fact that they were so um, aligned you know, and the teachers probably all got the same level of training and the same type. I would just be really interested to see that because our public schools try to do the same thing. But like you have pointed out, it's not consistent, right? Common Core took a while to roll out. And so if your board shifted between there, you might have seen some changes or approaches they were taking under the previous board could have shifted under a new board and teachers are mid training. And I, I mean, I'm wondering what role that played.
0: You know, I think that probably played a major role. And, you know, we're going to shift to a point here about the administration of these Department of Defense schools in just a moment. But, you know, every public school district district system is different. Every single one has different leadership, different teachers, different factors, and then they all operate in different states. And so, you know, there really isn't. And so, you know, I sort of find the Department of Education sort of being the head of the beast that we need to lock off argument to be interesting, because if the Department of Education was running things as centralized as some people believe, you know, then there would have been this standardization Mm -hmm. rollout with different programs over the years. And you just don't see it because... The Department of Ed has their role. The State Department's Ed have their role. The school districts, you know, their administration has their role. Their boards have their role. There's different teachers. There's just a lot of different personalities operating under a lot of different systems. And so when you say, hey, this is a new national curriculum push, for example, and we're all going to implement it. You know, unless that was implemented in a very centralized fashion, you are going to have idiosyncrasies. You are going to have differences. And the other thing that also, you know, leans into this and, you know, going back to prior in our conversation about these schools is that the way the teachers are paid, the way the teachers Mm -hmm. are trained, the access to resources students have. So you're also starting a curriculum implementation sort of with a baseline a baseline of the students having a certain level of care at home, because there are jobs, there is healthcare, there is housing that the teachers are getting paid at a certain level that everybody's getting trained. Um, and, you know, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that teacher training in a moment, but there's just sort of a heavier investment in setting a baseline so that all the students are sort of set up at the same level and can and start from that level, you know, in their public education process, you know, through these DOD schools.
1: Yeah. And that, that's a big deal to come in like that. And I know, you know, anyone who has studied teaching or anything with child development, you'll know that it's just that that is like, child development 101. You know, students cannot learn if they don't have their basic needs met, if they don't feel safe. And this system is sort of set up where all the kids are sort of coming in already with that, where in in other public schools, that's not the case.
0: So a big question is addressed at the end of this piece uh, by the head honcho of these schools, the, the director of defense department schools, Thomas M. Brady. And he points to things that he describes as not in his own words very sexy, (laughs) but the ability to (laughs) engage in meaningful logistical planning and not surprisingly a predictable budget. And I have to say as a dollars and cents, kind of a gal who loves plans, like that really spoke to me because I can see somebody as a member of the military, like logistics and resources and supplies are, are mission critical, no pun intended to, you know, what they engage in, you know, day to day as the military defending our country. But they're taking that same, you know, process, those same processes, that same sort of logistical planning, you know, and putting this into the education space. And I just find that interesting from sort of a perspective of, you know, that probably is why some of these results are coming. Um, but I also want to point out, and then we'll, we'll pivot to some of the differences, is that you know he also has been at this post for nearly ten years, and that's longer than most public school superintendents would serve in that tenure. So. You know, we've talked about some other factors that maybe this is why these schools are succeeding, but also the leadership is consistent again public schools, there are school boards, you know, the members, the cast of characters on those school boards change. But something else we can't overlook is that administration changes, whether it's a superintendent, assistant superintendents, other people in a district office, like those leaders also change pretty frequently. We also see a change, you know, at the county level, as well as the state level. I mean, a lot of our electeds um, are actually state superintendents of public instruction, they're elected officials, they have term limits, they may come in and serve their time, someone else takes the post. So in some states, they could be term limited to two terms, which means the longest they would serve as a state superintendent could be eight years. And, you know, this gentleman has been in this post for, you know, nearly 10. So there's also a difference in sort of the leadership and the length of that leadership.
1: Yeah, the consistency that brings. In speaking with one of the teachers at Faith Middle School in Fort Moore. This was one thing that was most interesting to me here is um, that teacher pointed to a couple of, couple of things that are different from her experience in a non-DOD public school, some of which um, are going to seem counterintuitive to a lot of educators. So one, there is no supplemental curriculum. Two, there is, a pr- there is a approved list of curriculum that they adhere to. There's detailed feedback from coaches and administrators who observe classes. And collaboration with teachers is built into her weekly schedule. And I will say there are public schools that are doing especially these last two things. I I think that you see that more with um, public schools, at least that I've
0: been working in. So what is your take, though, uh, as an educator, you know, the thing that I found interesting in reading this, and I, you know, I thought this was an, a great article, you know, I was not right. fully aware of this. And so I love learning new things. But we are having this debate right now <laughs> over a supplemental curriculum and approved lists of curriculum. And the debate is not in the vein of, and I believe with these military schools, uh, the idea is that. There's no supplemental. So everybody's learning the same thing. There's nothing off the approved list so that it's standardized. So I think the purpose behind this from the DOD is that we know what everybody's learning in every classroom. So it's not the malintent purpose that we're hearing from trying to take. Curriculum out of public schools, but right. kind of getting at the same thing, and so that kind of stopped me for a second. And again, I'm reminding everybody: this is our think about it podcast. Yes, yeah. uh,
1: I'll say yeah. as a as a parent and educator, um, I gosh, I have questions. I think that's where I'm at. I have questions. What does their core curriculum look like? Is it the, are they are they using the same curriculum that? other other public schools we see are using? Or are they sort of building their own curriculum? Like, are the teachers working together to build the curriculum? And that's the approved curriculum you cannot supplement? Or are they adhering to like one program? Because I have yet to see one adopted program that really does a thorough job at addressing the needs of students completely. So I would love to see what their curriculum looks like. You know, I have questions about that. Um, for sure. And I would love to see what like their level of critical thinking skills are of students that come out of these schools. So I can see that they're all doing an excellent job of, you know, hitting benchmarks, and reading, which is something we definitely need to look into in our public schools, you know, there's definitely a literacy issue. But On the flip side, are they also addressing the needs of some of these, you know, um, gifted students or higher level thinking kids and critical thinking and how how is that addressed and what's that looking like? I mean, like, I think this article is very interesting and I definitely have more questions before I could think what from this is extractable and usable in our public schools.
0: I agree. You know, one of the other things, and you just hit on it, is, you know, there's this idea in this article of of the standardization, which clearly from, I'm just going to say from testing, which again is also controversial Mm -hmm. uh, in, in some respects in terms of actually serving as a benchmark. But, you know, clearly they know that students are coming out of their schools upon graduation with a certain set of knowledge and skills. And, you know, one of the questions that I sort of had in the back of my head was, and we have this issue with, public, private, charter, you know, whatever schools is that, you know, oftentimes, you know, we don't meet the students who excel academically, but oftentimes we don't meet the students who need help. And we particularly don't meet students who are special education students and have Mm -hmm. and so, you know, I'd be curious to sort of know, you know, how those students, you know, what resources they are getting, what help they are getting, what assistance they are getting, and how you know, they have tackled that issue in these schools, because, you know, that's something that and I think that we saw this stratification during the pandemic as well. Um, you know, I would just be curious to see or talk to someone who has worked in or administered in these schools of like how they handle this as well. Because, you know, I think that there are definitely, you know, between, you know, what's happening here, you know, clearly, I think the author's trying to show that this seems like an anomaly. Like, like, how is this happening here? And she's trying to dig into, you know, maybe these are the conditions that are creating this. But, you know, I always like to think as, as I read articles like this where they are highlighting, you know, excellence and education, you know, I, I often think like, you know, what about any, mm-hmm. you know, holes in. <laughs> well, I'm
1: wondering, too, I wonder what their learners look like do they have the same percent of, of special ed kids? Do they have the same percent? Do they, are they, do they test, are they testing in the same number as our public schools are? Because that can vary also, and that impacts a lot of things, you know? So I'm wondering what their learning community looks like as far as in comparison to the general population.
0: Yeah, and I uh, did some research after reading this article, but this is something that, you know, in a future podcast, you know, I would love to revisit with someone who's taught in these schools or could give, you know, more, you know, insight into what happens in these schools. Because, you know, part of, you know, what we try to do as an organization, and I know that sometimes we all feel like we're continually (laughs) fighting (laughs) back against things, but you know, our core mission is quality public education for all students. And so, you know, our organization comes in a position that clearly there's always things we could be improving in public schools and we need to have those meaningful conversations. Um, But this is one of those things where I was like, kind of like, huh, like, you know, how are they doing this? Mm -hmm. And You know, I I think that again, you know, I would welcome having a future podcast, you know, on this topic just to get more into, you know, how these schools operate. Uh, But I want to read directly from the article. Um, and this is the beginning of the quote, the approach is meant to guard against what the principle of faith middle school calls pockets of excellence. And so it's the idea that making sure all teachers and in turn, all their students are being successful together. And so this model is essentially raising the floor for all students. And it's actually similar. And, and I didn't know this either to the goals and models of education systems in other countries like Finland and Singapore.
1: Mm. So interesting. Uh, Additionally, Jason Dougal, the president of the National Center on Education and the Economy, references that American school districts often have, quote, an all-star mentality. They rely on the best teachers and principals to get results instead of making sure that everyone is supported to get those same results or better results. And I would, and based on my experience, I would definitely, I would agree. I I definitely see that.
0: Yeah, and I think that you know one of the points of this article um, that I think keeps getting made again and again throughout—it's about a ten-page article—and um, I again would would encourage anyone to read this—is that they are trying to set the same baseline, get everybody starting from the same position, whether it's the teachers or the staff or the students. Like, there's just there's some inherent factors in place that we ought to sort of look at, I mean, this is not necessarily, you know, the replicable part of this, but, Mm -hmm. you know, these are students who, again, back to basic needs, food, housing, healthcare. a parent has employment. And then they're coming into these schools with that baseline. And then the teachers are coming into the schools feeling better financially supported. Um, You know, so there are some baselines here that are allowing for this sort of Raising of the floor for all students. And again, we divided this into external factors. Well, I mean, arguably, it's all within the Department of Defense and the military base. But, you know, th- there's these factors that are before the classroom and these factors that are in the classroom. And so we tried to sort of divide the conversation that way. But, you know, this was a food for thought podcast. And we just wanted to bring this up. Um, you know, this article raises many interesting points, you know, some of which have their positives and negatives. Um, but we also just want to make sure that, you know, we're continually getting people thinking about how we can improve our public schools across the country. This has been head of the class, a podcast produced by our schools, USA. Once again, we are Christina Gagne, the former school board member and Christy Hurst, a former teacher and current public school parent. And always
1: remember, don't get mad, get organized.